I'm just going to open up in a word of prayer before we begin. Um, there is a lot that goes on here at Lakeside, and we are constantly in a struggle to find time to share all the things that are going on with you. And that's a good problem to have on a Sunday morning. We have to talk about day camp. We want to preach the word. We want to pray. We want to pray for our missions partners. We want to sing. We want to do communion. It's just a lot going on. So that's a good problem. But I'm just going to open up in a word of prayer. And I'm going to just mention once again so that we don't talk about it at communion. Uh, if you're a visitor here, you notice we don't pass the plate. We haven't done that since COVID. Uh, there's black boxes at the back, and people can register for direct deposit if they want to give. So we don't pass the plate for giving, except on communion Sundays. And we take up special offerings on communion Sundays. And as was mentioned, uh, after communion, there'll be a special offering, which will go to our summer camp leadership staff and all of our summer ministries um, to just help us get through this final Sunday of our budget year uh, on target. So I won't mention any more about that, uh, just so that you know what's going on later on. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you this morning uh, that we do get to gather and we get to celebrate you in so many different ways and that it is a good problem to have that we have too much to celebrate uh, with baptisms and day camps and families and kids and missionaries and so much that you are doing uh, through us. And we are humbled, Lord, that you would do so much for your kingdom uh, through us. And Father, I pray that, uh, that we would be faithful stewards of everything that you give us, the people that you bring across our path especially, that you bring them through our door and you bring them across our path in this community, that we would be good stewards of who they are and uh, caring for them the way you would have us care for them. And Father, I just pray that uh, we would, um, yeah, that, that we would continue to hold these camps up in prayer, these leaders up in prayer. I pray that we would give of our time and our, our uh, finances to these things. I pray that we would um, love these people as, as dearly as you love them. And Father, um, I just pray for our missions partners now. I pray for Ben Peltz at Curve Lake, and I pray for Daniel and Helen Bravo and all of our missions partners around the world that we recognize that we're not just doing ministry here. We're doing ministry in your kingdom globally. And Father, we thank you that we get to participate in that. And now, Father, I just pray that as we open up your word, as we uh, listen to the word of God, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, um, not let us come away from this transformed. We thank you for your scripture and uh, that it transforms us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just getting like wild ringing back here. I don't know if anybody else is getting it. Can you turn my gain down a little bit? I'm not sure what that is, but it's there we go. That's better. Thank you. ringing pretty heavily in my ears. Um, All right, we are in Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. And I'm going to go through this rather quickly. Um, But it is an important message. Um, And if you've noticed as we've gone through this series on Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon has returned again and again and again to these enjoyment passages. You've probably noticed uh, that he says, you know, Eat your food, drink your wine, enjoy life, take what pleasure you can. And so we've not dwelt on the enjoyment passage uh, in depth, but there's no getting around it that it is important to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's important to the message that uh, Solomon wants to get across to us. There is something about this life under the sun that we are meant to enjoy, and we should enjoy rightly. Now, 
the opening of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and I'm just going to summarize this wall of text in verses 1 to 6, is where Solomon returns to the concept of death. And he wants to paint the picture of a satisfied and enjoyment of living against the backdrop of death. And so in verses 1 to 6, we see that death comes to everyone, the righteous and the wicked. The clean and the unclean will die. A good person or a sinner meets the same fate. A faithful person or an unfaithful person, it's one fate for everyone that we will all encounter death. He says it's no wonder that people act maliciously if we all end the same. If we're all going to end up dead, why don't we just act however we want? It's no wonder, he says, that people go crazy wrestling with the fatalism of it all. He says, at least while you live, you know something, but the dead know nothing. And their love and their hates and their passions are all gone and soon forgotten. So we know that Solomon will not get hired to write Hallmark cards. (laughs) Or condolence cards, for that matter. Happy birthday. Better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Sorry for your loss. All their dreams are dead, too. Yep, that's Ecclesiastes for you. So he paints this bleak picture of death, and you're starting to think, why is Solomon painting such a bleak picture? I'm reading the Bible to be encouraged. Well, it leads Solomon into another imperative to his students, a command, an instruction to follow. Our core text here, Ecclesiastes 9, 7 to 10, is where he wants to get people to against the backdrop of death. He says, go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not the oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun." For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that is the grave, where you are going. Now commentators down through the ages have sort of struggled with how to interpret the joyful life passages of Ecclesiastes. This repeated encouragement, as I mentioned, to eat and drink and work well and sleep well and be satisfied. They're very prevalent in Ecclesiastes. They're repeated often uh, as the end of arguments, as Solomon's answer to the futility of materialism or the futility of hedonism or the futility of philosophy or loneliness or here, even death. And there's one small but persistent school of thought that perhaps Ecclesiastes is completely cynical from cover to cover. That Solomon is simply being sarcastic or ironic in these passages. He's basically saying, everything is stacked against you, so go ahead and try to enjoy life anyway. Or, there is no ultimate purpose, so suck it up and settle for whatever you can get. But when we're reading Ecclesiastes, we see the tone of these passages is not exactly cynical. It doesn't stand up to that interpretation. Maybe if Solomon said it once, we could be understanding it as a cynical observation, but Solomon keeps coming back again and again and again to this theme of satisfied living. He just keeps saying it. He says it so often that many people believe it basically has become the central theme of the whole book. Enjoy your life and be satisfied with what you have. It's repeated too often to be a sarcastic observation. 
But even more importantly, I think what we observe here is that in every one of these passages, God is at the center of these joyful living instructions. In chapter 2, 24 to 25, he says, There's nothing better than for a person to eat and drink and find enjoyment, for they are the gift of God, and who can have joy apart from them? And in chapter 3, he says, everyone should eat and drink and enjoy his work. This is God's gift to mankind. In chapter 5, he says, eat and drink and find enjoyment. This is the gift of God who will keep him occupied with joy in his heart. And then here in Ecclesiastes 9-7, eat in happiness and drink wine cheerfully because God has already approved of your works or approved this way of living. Or even most literally, God has already declared his favor on this. And so for Solomon, there's this always present reality of God at the center of real satisfaction in life. And for that reason, I can't believe that Solomon is being cynical. He's saying the only satisfaction that we have in life is when God is at the center of enjoying it. Every description that Solomon gives of life, apart from the enjoyment of life with God, is framed in terms of futility and frustration and loss and darkness. It's only these passages that have God at the center where we see enjoyment and satisfaction in life and joy and hope. And that is no accident. That is not ironic. It's not cynical. It's just the opposite. These enjoyment texts, as you find them in Ecclesiastes, are the rays of light that point us towards brighter hope to come. Eating and drinking, feast-like banqueting enjoyment is the fruit of our labor, is one of the recurring images that Solomon holds out to us as the readers of his book as indicators of God's blessing and indicators of God's presence in our lives, that we have these blessings and that we are able to enjoy them. Even that enjoyment in the basic essence of life is impossible if God isn't in the frame is what Solomon is saying. God must be put in the frame for us to enjoy life. But then in verses 8 and 9, he gives some more shape to this satisfaction. I call it the shape of the satisfaction because he kind of rounds out the ways in which we should be satisfied. And he gives us two other categories of enjoyment. He says, let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Solomon basically says that With God at the center of our life, we should put on our best clothes. We should put product on our hair and our skin. The wearing of white clothing and the anointing of a head is a sign of celebration, of a party. You don't wear white and perfume to go to work, but you wear white and perfume to go to a celebration. And and so the, the feasting has to be alongside this celebratory living. God's people are normally presented as joyful. Wearing bright clothing, not sackcloth. Putting ointment on their head, not ashes. Christians are able to rejoice in all things at all times, and so joy should be close to the surface, says Solomon, in our life. And then in verse 9, he says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. So Solomon adds to the enjoyment of Uh, celebration and then the enjoyment of food and wine, the enjoyment of companionship. He says, men, enjoy your wife in love, and women, enjoy your husband in love, we could say on the other side. This is your reward. Now, I know many of you may not think that, you know, living with your husband is a reward, (laughs) but he is literally a prize. He is your reward. 
You may not think of him that way, but he is. And husbands, loving your wife is a reward. If you don't think your husband is a prize, or you don't think that loving your wife is a reward, then that tells you that your frame of reference is somehow different than biblical. Because the biblical frame of reference is your husband is a reward and loving your wife is a reward. It is a prize to be able to do so. And so we need to conform our marriages and the way we think about our relationships to be biblical if we don't think this way. A good pastor is always looking for alliteration to help you remember things. So I've labeled these three joys that Solomon describes as contentment, celebration, and companionship. He says you can be contented in your food and drink, you can celebrate in your life, and you should enjoy companionship. And and what we've talked about before is that Solomon sees dimly from the Old Covenant what is coming in the New Testament and what the New Testament reveals more clearly. If we step back from the immediate context of Ecclesiastes, we find that Scripture confirms what Scripture says. In the New Testament, we find the same freedom and the same instruction to enjoy God's provision and God's creation and practical warnings that come with them. We see this perhaps most clearly in the New Testament, practical encouragement on Christian enjoyment in 1 Timothy 4. Paul says to his young protege Timothy in in verses 4 and 5, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And so first of all, Paul says every created thing is good, and it need not be rejected if God is at the center of it, if we are receiving it with prayer. His friend James would agree. He says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So you see see the similarity with God at the center, with, with God in the frame, in our view, then everything is able to be enjoyed, just as Solomon said. Everything is pointing us towards the goodness of the Creator who provided the gifts that we enjoy. In the case of his letter to Timothy, Paul's observation actually comes very purposefully at the end of an argument rejecting false teachers who are arguing that it is somehow more righteous to abstain from enjoyment. In the previous verse, just before that, he said, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in those who believe and knowing the truth. He says there are people out there that say, Don't eat, don't enjoy, don't even be married if you want to be truly righteous. And Paul's argument is, No, these are gifts of God, and if you can enjoy them in the word and in prayer, then they are for your enjoyment. And that's why in Colossians and in other places, he says not to pass judgment on people who are enjoying the things of life. You see somebody enjoying their food, enjoying their wine, enjoying their life, don't be judgmental towards them. They have freedom in Christ, and they are in the Word. If Christ, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, then why were you still alive in the world? Do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but those rules are of no value in stopping indulgence. What is of real value is the first part that he said. If you are really with Christ, if you are a believer who has died to the world, then you don't have to fear the world and you can enjoy the products of the world. They are gifts of God that can be enjoyed with the word and with prayer. 
But the New Testament also carries some practical warnings about Christian indulgence on the other side of that. Because you say, well, we know Solomon. I mean, of all the guys who said enjoy life but don't overindulge, Solomon is the worst example of that. Solomon is the guy who overindulged in everything. So he didn't set a very good example. And the New Testament gives us practical warnings about Christian indulgement. Paul says that Oh, there we go. Um, In the New Testament, Christians are never to let their freedom and call to enjoy the created turn into a return to slavery to the things of the world. So Paul says that in treating the created things of the world as if they are ultimate things would be sinful. The things of the world are not meant to usurp, as um, we heard in the prayer this morning, are not meant to usurp the things of God. The things of the world are subordinate to the things of God. The created is subordinate to the creator. And in fact, if as Christians we allow ourselves to be captivated entirely by the enjoyment of the world, that is in essence the essence of sin. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So Paul in Romans 1 basically says, this is the essence of sin. (laughs) When we displace God off of the throne and put someone else there, ultimately it's us. But it could be food, could be drugs, could be relationships, could be our marriage, could be our kids. We can put all kinds of things on the throne. And all of those things are created things. And when we displace the creator for the created, Paul says that's the essence of sin. And it is actually even good things that we can use to displace God. As Tim Keller writes in The Reason for God, he says, Sin is not only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. And that's important for us to remember because the Bible is unashamed in its encouragement for us to enjoy life. Solomon says enjoy life. Paul says enjoy life. James even says enjoy life. Everybody, Jesus says enjoy life. God has given us all these great gifts which we are to enjoy, but they are not to become our ultimate satisfaction. So we can look at food and drink and marriage and family and children and work and the beauty of nature and all of those things in life as good things, and we are meant to enjoy them as believers, but they are never ultimate things. There is a higher satisfaction than the satisfaction we receive in marriage. There is a higher satisfaction than what we receive even in children, and in the beauty and mysteries of nature and science. If we hold those things as ultimate things, they ultimately become our idols, and they let us down. And then we become angry when our idols are threatened. And we become discouraged and hopeless when our idols fail us. And so this is the warning in the New Testament and Old to not make idols of the things of the world. We worship God, and everything is subordinate to that. And those things in their right place bring us enjoyment and satisfaction. If we elevate them out of their place, they bring us despair and hopelessness. We cannot hope in our marriage. We cannot hope in our kids. We can't hope in our career. We can't hope in food. We can't hope in anything other than God because everything else will let us down. 
If you wondered why Christians always say grace at meals, 1 Timothy 4.5 is your go-to verse. Prayer sanctifies what is received. In fact, prayer is a good litmus test for every activity that we take pleasure in. We can simply ask ourselves in whatever we're doing or whatever thing that we are treasuring and enjoying at the moment, is this something that we can give thanks to God for in prayer? Or are we taking our enjoyment and satisfaction in things that we would never in a million years ever take to God in prayer? If you're enjoying something and you are taking pleasure in something and you are satisfied in something and you are hoping God never finds out about it, then you are taking pleasure and satisfaction in the wrong thing. And there are lots of things that we can put our pleasure and our satisfaction in and hope God never finds out. That we would never go to God and pray and thank him for that activity or for that thing in the way that we're enjoying it. You know, thank you, Lord, for Game of Thrones, my favorite TV show. You know, I'm so glad that you gave me this whatever that is for me to enjoy. If you can't pray to God and give thanks for it, then maybe it's not the thing you should be taking your satisfaction in. If you can pray to God and give thanks for it, and it points to the Creator, then great. Can you give God thanks for good TV and good stories that encourage and shed light? Absolutely you can. Can you thank God for movies that declare the triumph of good over evil and, and, and testify to values that are important to us as Christians? Absolutely you can. Are there a lot of movies you do not want to bring to God in prayer? Absolutely there are. And so we need to be careful as Christians that we are enjoying the creation for the purpose that creation has been given to us. And that accounts for everything. Food is a delicious gift of God, but we can abuse ourselves with gluttony, or we can turn food for our, to our ultimate satisfaction and hope. Medicinal drugs bring healing and relief, but they can also be abused and used for escapism. Whatever you're enjoying, can you take it to God in prayer and truly give thanks for it? that he are using it as the creator intended. And Paul even addresses the nuanced reality that some things are good for some people and not good for others. In both Romans and Corinthians, Paul distinguishes between the freedom of someone to enjoy what someone else cannot because they can't enjoy it properly as God would have them enjoy it. And so some people drink wine and some people never touch wine again for the rest of their life. And that has to do with can they enjoy it as a gift of God? And can they enjoy it properly as God intended it? So as Christians, we are called to enjoy all the gifts that God has given us in life, but with the care that God is central to our enjoyment, and the created never surpasses the creator. Now in closing, I just want to return briefly to Ecclesiastes 9 and come back to our text here. You see... Like all the good gifts to be enjoyed by Christians here on earth, they are to point us to God. And so too, all scripture points us to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is an anticipation of the new covenant to come. And in our text, you might wonder, where is Jesus here? In our text, Solomon gives us three symbols of joy and satisfaction. I called them contentment, celebration, and companionship. But these three things are clearly feasting, clothed in white and anointed, and married. Now, for the believers out there who I know are diligent Bible students, do I have to connect the dots with you between feasting, clothed in white, and anointed, and married? 
to the person of Jesus Christ? (laughs) Is this a text where the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, there is a better feast coming. There is a better anointing coming. There is a better clothing coming. There is a better marriage coming. That is not the feasting of this world. It's not the party clothes of this world. It is not the marriage of this world. Solomon, in searching for hope in the world under the sun, holds out these three things that point most clearly to the hope that's coming in Christ Jesus and is now here for us. Because of Jesus, we have been invited to his banquet feast. Isaiah saw the same thing. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines is in store for us in the banquet of God. He has clothed us in his righteous robes. Isaiah says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Notice, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Because the reality is this feast and this adorning is for a marriage. Jesus has become the bridegroom of the whole church. Revelation 19, 7-9 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so we see in this text in Ecclesiastes, even though Solomon opens up with this bleak portrayal of death coming to all, he says there is hope. There is a ray of light. With God in the frame, with God at the center, you can enjoy the blessings of this life. But the Holy Spirit through Scripture had an even brighter ray of hope to shine to us in this text. To look forward to the true hope that's in Jesus Christ. That there is a feast, there is an adornment, there is an anointing coming by the Holy Spirit. There is a marriage, there is a banquet that you are going to celebrate at that surpasses any joy and pleasure you can imagine in this life. What is the backdrop then of death then? What is Solomon's message in that? Well, he actually closes it off with the last verse that we looked at. He's saying, understand and take action on this now, Solomon would warn. For the grave, in the grave, there is no making plans. There is no learning. There is no changing your mind in the grave, in Sheol, where you are to come. And after the grave comes the judgment, he says in chapter 12, verse 14. And it doesn't matter how strong or intelligent or skillful you were in this life. After the grave, it all depends on whether God's in the frame or not. And that's all. And so if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, are are you trusting in your strength or your intelligence or your skill? Because they will not serve you in the life to come. And if you're here today, believer, Christian, is your hope firmly in the righteousness of Jesus to be welcomed at the feast to come? And have you made sure that all of your satisfaction, all of your enjoyment, all of the pleasure which you are to take in this world is not captivating your heart, but is pointing you towards the true satisfaction to come? 
And so as we go into communion, we have this early foretaste, a symbol of the feast, the celebration, and the companionship and communion to come to us. We have the shadow of the reality that is to come. There's no more appropriate time than communion for us to meditate on the blessings of God in our lives, whether it's marriage or family or children or food or shelter, whatever, this creation, meditate on those blessings and count those blessings and then see through them and let them point towards the true blessing of the creator and what he has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we do at communion. Let's just pray and I'll have my communion helpers come forward at this time. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder of Solomon that he makes the darkness just a little bit darker every time we open up a new topic with him. But then as the darkness becomes darker, there is this ray of light that points us to the hope. And so, Father, that's what we do this morning as we take communion. We count our blessings. We recognize the darkness that had enveloped us in sin. But we see the shining light of Jesus. We see the hope that is held out to us. Not satisfaction ultimately in this life, but satisfaction ultimately in him and what he did on the cross. So that we might feast with him in heaven. So that we might be adorned in his righteous robes. So that we might be anointed by his Holy Spirit. So that we might be welcomed. The bride of Christ. To live in enjoyment. Not just for this life under the sun, but for eternity. As we take communion now, we will remember that. In Christ's name, amen.